This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, session number 18. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Rob Carrick on the show, who is the main personal finance columnist at The Globe and Mail. He's also the author of five personal finance books for Canadians, and all in all, is easily one of the most respected and well-known personal finance experts here in Canada. You can get all the links and resources mentioned on the episode over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 18, so just the number 18. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up to the newsletter for free to get exclusive guides and content that is only available to Build Wealth Canada subscribers. All right, now let's get into the interview. All right, Rob, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, So Rob, what I thought we'd do is talk about probably one of the most common questions that I think us Canadians have, and that is, should when we have savings, should we be putting them towards our mortgage? Should we be putting them towards our RSP or our TFSA? And if we are investing them in, let's say, RSP or TFSA, uh, you know, what should we actually be investing in and what should our asset allocation be like? And I think obviously that question is kind of a big one and, uh, and it can vary and there's a lot of different variables to consider. So what I thought we could do is maybe break it down chronologically. So first approaching it from the perspective of someone that, let's say, is fresh out of school. So they're just starting their career. They're able to basically start saving for the first time. They actually have some money left over. Um, and now, of course, the big question for them is, okay, what do I do with my savings now? Where should I be putting them? Uh, and then phase two would be someone maybe in their late 20s and their 30s. So you know they have a career now. They've maybe got a promotion or two or three. Um, so now they're, you know, they're earning a much higher salary than they were before, which now they're in a higher tax bracket. Maybe they have kids now. So obviously their situation might be a little bit different. Uh, and then phase three would be sort of the end where now, okay, Okay, this individual has been working their whole life. They're at the pe- the, the peak in terms of their career, in terms of their earnings. Uh, so now they're con- you know consequently in the highest tax bracket as well. Uh, but they want to retire in a few years. So what should sort of they be doing now in terms of where to put all those extra savings? Uh, all right. So uh, phase one: you know, someone fresh out of school, just starting their career, they can actually start saving now. Uh, so so I think the very first question they would have is: um, okay, should I even be saving for a down payment? On a, for a house? Uh, should they be even doing that to begin with? Uh, what, what should they consider? The first question I would have, though, is do you have any debt? Do you have any student debt <clears throat> or any credit card debt left over from school? Because that's got to be your first priority. First pay that off before you start saving. Mm-hmm. Then you want to save for an emergency fund. Uh, I mean, you know, the people say it should be three months or six months worth of living expenses. I'd be happy if you had one or 2000 in a savings account just to cover you off in case... In case of an emergency, so you don't have to go into debt to cover it. So once you got that done, then I think you want to move on to the decision about what's your what's your savings goal. Is it going to be a house, or is it going to be for retirement, or do you want to travel, or do you want to take a year off and do something? Um, uh, so you have to you have to pick your goal. Um, you can't do it all, and if you want to do a house, that's going to take precedence over everything. Because there's no way you're going to be able to save for retirement and a house down payment if you live in any of the big cities where house prices have just soared in the past few years. So that, that's that's where I, you know, the, the graduate who's, who's working and able to save has to say, what's my number one goal at this point? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, sounds good. So um, let's say that they've decided, okay, you know what, I don't want to get into housing, you know, maybe they're living in Toronto, they see how high the prices are, they're just, they just don't want to get into that whole you know, home, the whole home buying thing. They just want to be a renter. They're, they're completely happy with that. Um, so now, uh, because they're not saving for down payment for a mortgage, at this point, should they be, and, and let's assume here now that, you know, they've gotten rid of their debt as well. So they have, you know, they've taken that, taken care of that. They have their emergency fund taken care of. What should they be doing now? Should they be using their RSP to invest, their TFSA? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, um, I think the TFSA is probably the way to go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> The classic way to decide TFSA versus RSP is to think what's your tax rate now versus what your tax rate is going to be in retirement. And if your tax rate is lower now than it's going to be in retirement, then that argues for the uh, for the TFSA. Uh, so um, 
you will um, you do you will use the TFSA exclusively. And if you you know if you're such an aggressive saver that you can um, that you can go beyond your TFSA, then you can add it. You can certainly use your RSP as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the beauty of the TFSA is that it's easy. If you decide that you know what, I really do want to buy a house after all, or I really do want to take a month off and travel somewhere, you can take money out of the TFSA quite easily and put it back quite easily. Right, right. Yeah. Versus the RSP, there's the home buyer's plan, but I would say there's more hoops to jump through to to do that, and now it's one more yeah. thing to manage, and you want to make sure you follow all the rules. Whereas with TFSA, well, it seems a lot more clean, right? A lot. Of- yeah, well, it, definitely. I mean, the thing with the home buyer's plan is you you put money in your RSP and you get like this tax deduction, and that's extra money in a way. Um, so people like that aspect of using the home buyer's plan, but I, I think the home buyer's plan is just a it's time to wind that down. It's sending totally the wrong signal about retirement savings. The idea that you use RSPs is like this laundering system for money for your house. It's really, it sends exactly the wrong message. Young people are doing really well putting money in their RSPs and they think, nope, I'm going to take it all out and buy a house and then I'll pay it back. Most people end up paying it back in 15 equal installments over 15 years. That's the minimum payback period. And, you know what? You've taken money that could have been compounding over that 15-year period. You've taken it right out of the RSP. Use a TFSA, as you say, much cleaner. Um, RSPs are for retirement, not for home buying. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, like the home buying industry, talk the government into that. And it's time for the government to say, you know what? Let's just get rid of that program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, because it it does sort of indirectly kind of link the home to retirement, which is not really something you want to do, right? I mean, yeah, you know what? I think I think the home buyer's plan came into existence at a time when the home industry was looking for some stimulation. It doesn't need that now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, I think we could we could certainly get rid of that. But in any case, I think the TFSA is the place to go. Um, if you are decided you're not going to go in the housing market, what I would think you what I think you want to do is be prepared to revisit your housing market decision because people who in, in their early 20s think, ah, you know what, houses are too expensive. I don't want to get them. You know what they're going to do? They're going to meet spouses and they're going to get married and they're going to want to have kids and they're going to want to have a house at that point. Mm-hmm. So if you're 22, 23, even up to 25, maybe you want to have like a 10-year window or a five-year window and revisit your housing decision. But meantime, I think you can invest fairly aggressively to build your wealth uh, you know, basically give yourself a wealth base that in 10 years time, you can think, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to maybe use it for my house. Maybe I'll just use it for retirement, uh, any number of things. But the idea being that you have some, you have some assets to your name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My logic towards using the TFSA over the RSP when you're younger is that you're basically in the lower bracket. Realistically, you're probably in a lower bracket now than you will be in the future. You know, once you start getting these these promotions, right? So, so it makes so you're not really if you use your RSP, you're not really taking advantage of those deductions that the RSP provides as well as you would be if it's a years down the road. Now you're making let's say you know six figures or close to it. I mean, yeah. you know, that's when you can really take advantage of the RSP and, and take advantage of those deductions. Right. Well, you know, if you if you um if you put money in a TFSA, in an RSP, I should say, you're going to get a tax deduction at your low tax rate at your, because you're in a low tax rate when you're just starting out. You're not paying a lot of taxes. And then over the years, you're going to be saving a lot of money and building your wealth. And then in retirement, you're going to likely be in a higher tax rate. So basically, you've got a small deduction for making the RSP mm-hmm. contribution, and you're going to have a big tax bill for taking money in the RSP out of the RSP when you're retired. That doesn't really compute. Exactly. So I think that's why the TFSA is good. And as you say, when you get more, when you build up a bigger salary, then the RSP becomes much more of a consideration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Now, is there are there any situations where someone young that's younger in this position where they should choose RSP? Are there any sort of exceptions that you Well, I guess, of? you know, one situation could be if you're graduating into a great job with a huge salary, mm-hmm. maybe that it makes sense at that right. point in time. Um, one thing I, you know, one psychological thing that RSPs have going for them is that the money is a little bit difficult to get at. And, I, and I've heard a lot of financial advisors say that um, they're a little bit wary of TFSAs because really you can take money of your TFSA online, you just log into your bank or your brokerage firm and transfer the cash and it's really simple. Mm-hmm. An RSP is much more difficult. You have to pay a fee. A lot of firms will charge you an RSP withdrawal fee and then there's withholding tax right. on that. And there's a lot. So basically, there's like a couple of fences you have to get over to get your RSP money, and that psychologically may stop some people from dipping it into it for dipping into it frivolously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, like the withholding tax alone. I mean, I, I can see that being quite a nuisance for people and kind of a surprise right. for them as well. And now you want to make sure that, okay, you know, how do I deal with that? Did they calculate it correctly? Right. A lot of firms will charge you at least $50 to take money out of an RSP. And that's when you're young and you don't have much in there. That's a fair amount. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then, so so let's say, okay, we're... Um, we are now investing, uh, we're using our TFSA. What do you recommend for young people to invest in? Are you, are you a big, um, do you encourage index investing or, or do you prefer some other method? No, I'm a big index inve- investing fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it is the quickest, cleanest, most efficient way for the most investors to make the most wealth. It's really, it just makes a lot of sense to me. There's, it, it simplifies investing. I think you get very good results mm-hmm. if you stick with it. Mm-hmm. And um <clears throat> It's a good way to put the most money to work because the fees are uh, fees are low, and um, you know if you pick the right investments, it costs nothing, little or nothing to buy them, and little or nothing to to own them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that that sounds good. Um, yeah, I, I'm big into. Uh, I, I basically buy uh, index ETFs, broad market index ETFs, and yeah, I find that works great. And if you're if you are a younger individual too. You know, you might be working on your career, and that's kind of your focus. Let's say, so you know, do you really want to be spending this extra time yeah. trying to pick stocks and and you know, researching companies? I mean, if if you're kind of working on Bay Street and that's your thing, and and you you know, you want this to be your craft, um, then you know, by all means, uh, you know, if, if that's something that you want to really become an expert in, right? But um, then maybe that's different for you. But I think for most people, <laughs> uh, you know, we just we want to invest in something that's that's simple, straightforward, still earns a good return, yeah. so that we can focus yeah. on other things. Um, you know, whether it's careers, children, uh, finding a future husband or wife or <laughs> whatever the case may be. You know, one thing I do notice, though, I've like I've talked to a lot of, uh, you know, young people about investing in personal finance, mm-hmm. done a few sessions on university campuses. And one thing I get the sense of is that young people really are infatuated with the idea of home run stocks. They, they, the idea oh, yeah. of... I, I think. I'd like to invest, but what they mean is that well, I want to pick a few stocks and make a lot of money with them. Yep. And they think, uh, well, maybe maybe there's some company I've discovered. Uh, it's in some sector that I think is really promising. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Then there's other ones who think, oh, I'll just buy Apple or Google or something like that and make a lot of money. And, exactly. <laughs> you know what? I, I really, really think that's such a bad idea, you know. Mm-hmm. Um you're you're you need diversification, especially when you're working with a small amount of money. And it's just pure guesswork when you're buying individual stocks. I mean, you probably need about 12 to 24 stocks to have a properly diversified portfolio. And it's not really efficient to invest small amounts of money in individual stocks. ETFs or index mutual funds are are, are a much better way to go when you've got a substantial uh, portfolio and or you're very interested in researching stocks. By all means, branch out, but start with the with the uh, with the index fund product. I think mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think the stock picking thing it's definitely ha- has to be made clear. I think to a lot of younger people that it's not something that's very passive. You actually have to do a lot of research beforehand, and then if once you actually do pull the trigger, you actually have to stay on top of it to make sure that it is still a good investment. Yeah. So it's not it's not passive like like index investing. And then also, you know, they're competing now with analysts and then you know people on bay street and wall street that basically do this for a living non-stop right and you know so now you're sort of you know you're kind of tr- trying to think okay you can out analyze them and figure things out better than they than they can uh it's yeah it's just it's, it's it can be done i guess i suppose but it's it's a lot of work yeah. can, the way i look at it you can lose like 25 30 percent of your money like in an afternoon mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. it's wrong of the wrong stock yeah so um that's why i say buy the market that's what an index fund is you're basically buying the Tron, the S&P TSX Composite Index, or you're buying the S&P 500, whatever returns those indexes make, that's what you make minus a very small fee. Right, exactly, yeah. So let's say that, um, uh, let's move now that, okay, you're, you, you've just, you decided that you would like to own a home. You are starting to save for down payment. You already mentioned that in that scenario, uh, it's a good idea to use the TFSA uh, and, and you can use that to maybe save money for the down payment. When it's in a TFSA account, what would you recommend that it's invested in if, if the purpose is for a down payment? Because you probably don't want to throw it into equities, um, you know, because you might, you want access to that money, let's say in five years or less. There's only two things, mm-hmm. only two things. Mm-hmm. One is a high interest savings account. Mm-hmm. And if you shop around, you could probably get as high as about 1.6, 1.8% on that. Mm-hmm. And the other is a GIC ladder where you're basically taking your money. You say, I'm going to buy a house in five years. So you buy GICs maturing and you basically divide your money into five equal chunks maturing in one, two, three, four, five years. 
And at the end of the five years, you um, you have this cash that you from the maturing GICs, and um, and you use that to go to uh, to buy your house. You do not risk it in the bond market, and you don't risk it in the stock market because in any given year or even in any given two year period with bonds, if you you can lose money in stocks. You could easily be underwater after five years. Mm-hmm. So stay out, preserve your down payment money and invest in guaranteed safe investments for sure yeah it'd be such or savings accounts yeah it'd be such a shame that okay you put that money into equities because you really want that higher return and then you know a year before you're ready to put that down payment another 2008 happens and now you're right. you're kind of stuck you you don't want to take it out now because you're, you're you're selling it at a loss and i mean it just really complicates things and puts a lot of uh unnecessary stress just because you wanted those those few extra percentage points. So. Well, let's remember that the stock market went down about uh, about 40, 50 percent mm-hmm. uh, from, from peak to trough right. in the 2008-09 stock market crash. And I would always use that as a reference for what's the worst that could happen. Right. So imagine you're living in Toronto or Vancouver and you're patiently saving your down payment money and you have, you know, the 5% and all of a sudden your 5% turns into 2.5% mm-hmm. because the stock market had a bad couple of months. And um, if you think, well, I'll just tough it out, you probably will be sweating and you want to sell mm-hmm. to protect what's left. And that's just the worst possible outcome. That's why I say just completely remove your money, uh, your house down payment from the stock market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great tip. Um, all right, that's great. So um, I, I, you know, I think we covered sort of um, enough for the individual just starting out, just getting into saving, just getting into investing. Uh, let's maybe move on to sort of that second phase where <clears throat> now, uh, you know, they've been working, for, the Canadians been working for a few years, they've gotten that promotion or two or three, um, they're earning more, they're in a higher bracket, they can save hopefully now more than they were able to before. Um, and so let, let's take let's take the perspective of uh, a renter. Um, what should they be doing now? Should they maybe, if they were doing TFSAs before, should they now maybe consider switching to RSPs because now they're in a higher bracket? They should, you know, now they can actually take advantage of those deductions. Yeah, well, let's imagine that, that at this point you're probably in roughly the same tax bracket as you're going to be in retirement. In that case, um, it's basically a wash okay. about what you use. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you might want to use, you, you know, you could take the take the approach of I want to keep some money fairly accessible in my TFSA. I want to keep some money inaccessible just for retirement my rrsp you could certainly do that um but one thing i want to say is if you're uh, you mentioned that this person would be a renter if you're renting and you've decided that you're probably going to be a renter for the long term it's fine i got no problem with that i mean a lot of people will will, uh, will argue you uh, argue with you mm-hmm. strenuously over that decision not me as long as you make a commitment to aggressive investing right. so you're building your wealth in the stock market and investments and the homeowners building their wealth in the property market. Um, frankly, I think the the, uh, the renter building their wealth in the stock market has a few advantages, one of them being a lot, very liquid money right. that they can get access to. You know, home equity is great and all, but you can't really do a lot with it unless you borrow against it with your line of credit. Right. But the key is rent and invest. So um, you have to sort of figure out, I'm renting and I'm saving this much money over owning and I will invest that much money or very close to it. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in a very disciplined way over the decades, I think you will be equal to and arguably better off mm-hmm. than the homeowner. For sure. Yeah. I, I, and then, then I guess the big word there is is discipline, right? Is that you are Absolutely. actually disciplined and you are putting that difference that you're saving because you're That's renting right. instead of buying, you're actually investing that as opposed to upgrading to a the newest model of a car, of a car or well that's true you know you can, you can live a you can live if you make a good salary and you're renting mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot more a lot more cash flowing through your bank account than you if you were a homeowner sure. and you know a homeowner can be very undisciplined too i mean they can pay off some of their uh, mortgage and then they borrow it back through their home equity right. line of credit for that they kitchen can, they always wanted <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day they will own their house right say well at least i have something i was i you know i might have put way more money into the house and i'm going to get out of it but at the end i do have this house Mm -hmm. the renter has nothing unless they invest aggressively exactly yeah so it's uh yeah i I think that's something that they have to really keep top of mind all the time and i'm sure it's tempting right when you're you know you're saving all this money because you're you're renting you don't have all these expenses it's tempting to go out and buy these things but uh and i find that's kind of the common argument um that individuals make the, the ones that say you know you should just 
pay down your mortgage as soon as possible because they say, well, it's a forced savings plan. And so you're less likely yeah, to mess it, it up. No, it's, it's, it's a crummy savings plan, really. And you look at all the money you put into the house. Yeah. People never talk about that. They imagine like you, they just look at what they paid and what they got out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you add the mortgage interest and the property taxes yeah. and the insurance and the upkeep and maintenance and furniture and landscaping and all that stuff. Right. Um, you're putting more in than you're getting out. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's it's a very inefficient, weak savings plan, but it is a savings plan. Mm-hmm. And the renter has to really hustle to uh, to come out, you know, uh, with, with something at the end. But if they do, I think you can be in great shape. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much more flexibility. You know, you need to move cities because you want to change jobs. Right. So you don't have to go through the whole rigmarole and expensive rigmarole of moving. You just, uh, you give your landlord notice and go find another place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, at what salary level would you recommend that someone would consider now putting their money into an RSP instead of a TFSA? Um, oh, it's it's very tough to say. I, I don't know. I mean, I would say maybe when you're getting up into the high, you know, you know, getting close to six figures. Mm-hmm. Stuff, but you, have, you know what? It depends what career you're in, and you know what your what your salary trajectory is. And do you think you're going to have a lot of money? Are you having a lot of success saving for retirement? You're going to have a big um, you know, a big retirement savings portfolio. Do you have a company pension as well as an RSP? If you do, then you're probably going to be in a high tax bracket when you're in retirement. Right. Um, you know, if you're if you're only able to save modestly and you're not going to have a company pension, then you may not be in a very high tax bracket in retirement. So, right. uh, you know, you may not you may be making withdrawals from your RSP and not getting a big tax because you because you're just your total income isn't that high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then when it comes to how much RSP contribution to use, would you recommend, like let's say you're in a higher bracket, would you recommend trying to get down to that 40,000 level because that's where kind of around that level is where sort of that big jump happens in terms of how much you're taxed? Or do you suggest something else? Well, I, I don't know. You know what? I think people sometimes get a little bit caught up in like the tax minutia of investing. Mm-hmm. I think the thing to do is, you know, you can you can have your TFSA, you can have your RSP, you know what? There are you you there are optimum outcomes and there are less optimum outcomes. But the fact that you're saving and putting money away regularly, I, I count that as the number one goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so don't get too caught up in like, RSP versus TFSA. I think the general rule is, as we've talked about already, you know, compare your tax break that you're going to get on the RSP contribution now versus the tax hit on your withdrawals in retirement. Mm-hmm. And you want, basically, you want a bigger, you want your tax break to be bigger than your tax bill or at least the same size. So just just keep that relationship in mind. And, um, you know, using a TFSA may may not give you the optimum tax income, but the flexibility of the TFSA is, certainly counts for something. And you know what? I One of the complaints I hear over and over again from readers of the globe is how, this is from seniors, as how angry they are at having to pay taxes <laughs> on their RSP withdrawals. Yeah. You know what? People in retirement, although they are drawing down on the tax system, certainly through the health care they're getting and their OES and GIS and what have you, they don't like paying taxes. And so a lot of them feel like they made the wrong decision by putting a lot of money into RSPs. Right. And when they see the TFSA, they think, I wish that was around when I was saving right. for retirement. So, and the beauty of the TFSA is... I take the money out and the, the CRA, the taxman, has no interest in what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm not accountable to anybody. So although you may conceivably not get the best tax outcome with the with the TFSA, you will be very happy with your ability to pull money in and out, in and out, in and out, over and over, do whatever you want with it, and there are no tax implications. That's worth something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, let, let's say that you're using your TFSA and your RSP um, together um, as opposed to just picking one or the other. Uh, in that case, would you recommend putting uh, your equity portion as much into the TFSA as possible just because you are able to withdraw tax-free? Well, yeah. I mean, some people say you should put the... Um, yeah, you know what? Yes, I guess, I guess I guess, I guess, that would be just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you want... Basically, you want your, um, you want your highest taxed... Because you're, you're, you're going to be paying... Ta- all the investment gains in your RSP when you're withdrawing them are taxed at your marginal tax right. rate. So basically, whether it's dividends, capital gains, or interest, you're getting you're getting it's all taxed at your usual rate. In a TFSA, you know you pay tax on the money uh, you're using after tax dollars to put into the TFSA, mm-hmm. and once you've done that, there's no tax on anything. So um, you know you could buy you know it, you know there's a case for using bonds because bonds get taxed at your highest rate. Those could go in the TFSA. Right. 
Um, dividends, dividends get taxed very lightly. So, you know, maybe those, maybe those could go in your RSP. Um, I, I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about what investments go where, to be perfectly honest. I think the, the key is diversification in any type of account. Right. You know what? Um, I think people get, get caught up in sort of parceling things out in the end. What's the plan? Right. So right. It's a lot easier to say, I have a portfolio in my TFSA. It's very well diversified. I have a portfolio in my RSP. It's very well diversified. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm using balanced funds. Maybe I'm using just a couple of, uh, of ETFs. And each one, uh, each one is sort of a separate entity, but each one is a well-balanced, well-diversified, um, sustainable investment portfolio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good tip. And yeah, I, I can see that being a bit dangerous where someone's looking into sort of all these little details and exceptions, all, you know, should I do RSP or TFSA? And then at the end of the day, they aren't putting money into either because they haven't decided yet. Sort of what the optimum. Yeah, you know, you know what? I, you know yeah. what? I, I can I can see if you've nailed everything down. Right. You want to get into that, sure. Mm-hmm. But I think you know what? Let's let's just cover the more important things right. first. Are you investing? Right. Uh, yes or no? That's a big question. Are you using a TFSA RSP? I don't really care which one you're using, uh, as, if as long as you're investing. And then once you've mastered that, you've got a good program. Then we can decide the right account for you and the right investments for you. But. I, I think most people just just get doing something. That's better than nothing. Right, right. Yeah. So phase one is actually start investing using right. an account that is actually tax sheltered. Right. So if you told me that you just started investing and you bought a bank mutual fund and you stuck it in an RRSP, I would say, well, that's maybe not what I would do. But just the fact that you've gotten going and are putting some money away, I think that's not bad at all. Right. Or you've actually at least you got some momentum going, right. <laughs> as a, exactly. as opposed to deciding for a year what to do and how to split it and. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, and then um, doing something that isn't optimum is better than doing that. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that, that that's a good tip. Yeah. I like to get into the details on the show, but but for sure, I recognize that uh, it's it's very dangerous sometimes to get into too much detail because it can prevent someone from wanting to. It kind of delays yeah. the taking action, right? And now you're not investing exactly. anything, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, one thing we haven't actually we didn't cover that kind of in a previous phase yet is uh, the subject of asset allocation. So now, you know, now that you're uh, you're a bit older now in this particular scenario, um, what would your asset? What would you recommend your asset allocation to be versus when you're in that younger phase versus when you're in that that older phase? Do you have a certain rule that you would prefer? I know there's a lot of sort of different opinions on the matter. Yeah, there, there are there are a lot of different rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're young in your early twenties, I think you could be a hundred percent equities without any problem. Mm-hmm. And if you're a little bit worried about that, so maybe ten or twenty percent bonds. Um, and then from there on, once you get into your thirties and forties, um, you know, there's three different rules of thumb. There's the old-fashioned rule of thumb, which is your age, uh, basically a hundred minus your age is your allocation to stocks, mm-hmm. and then the rest would be bonds, and then. Um, we're living longer, we're going to need our money to grow longer. So there's 110 minus your age is your allocation of stocks. And I've even heard 120 minus your age based on the idea mm-hmm. that you may retire at 65, but you may live to 95 right. and you're going to need your money to keep growing. So I would look at those, but I would say, you know, you have to say to yourself, am I comfortable with that much money in stocks? And if you're not, then go a little less. Mm-hmm. These, these rules are not hard and fast. And if you ask like six different money managers what they thought the right mix was, you'd probably get six different answers. Right. There's no right answer. The answer is you use a lot of guidelines and rules of thumb and then you, uh, you size them to fit yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure. And I, I think the big question too is how, how, much can you, how, many, uh, how much losses can you stomach over the short term? Um, right? uh, because <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? People always overestimate their ability to sustain losses. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago, you know, the stock market in 2008-09 went down 40-50% from its peak to its worst point. Mm-hmm. And I think for the calendar year, oh wait, it was down about 30, the TSX was down about 33%. Now, the lesson we learned there is that it was horrifying when it happened, but, um, you know, uh, from today's, from if you had kept invested and put more money in, you'd have made quite a bit of money. The stock oh, market's... Yeah. 10-year average annual return is still about 8%. Mm-hmm. It's 8% over the 10-year, it's 8% over the 20-year, and it's 8% over the 30-year. Mm-hmm. So just stick with it over the long term. But you have to do, although we can talk about you know the long-term focus, you do have to, as you say, 
Think about your ability to tolerate the short term. And that's why you own bonds. You don't own bonds to make a lot of money in the bond market. You own bonds because you want something that's not falling when stocks are falling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of my uh, kind of one of my biggest regrets was when uh, when, I, when I was fresh out of university, kind of in my first career, basically 2008 happened. And so, you know, everyone kind of around the office is uh, <laughs> pretty upset. They're talking about how much money they, they're losing. And so as a as an impressionable <laughs> university grad, you kind of get a little scared from stocks. And so that yeah. was why, you know, back then I said, you know what, I'm just I feel more comfortable with real estate. I've researched it already. You know, I'm just going to try to get into, you know, um, into real estate investing. I'm going to try paying down my mortgage as quickly as possible. And that was kind of the route I took. But now in retrospect, kind of, you know, knowing what I know now, oh, I mean, if I just instead invested that money, <laughs> you know, just consistently invested, right, a percentage of the page, every paycheck, um, just into indexes during that time, I mean, things would have been even better now. So, um, you know, kind of kicking myself for it. But yeah, le- learn the lessons. Don't get scared off. Is, but you know what, you, you uh, to my point a moment ago, mm-hmm. you did something. Yeah. And that's, that don't, uh, don't, don't beat yourself up. You, you, <laughs> you took a stand and yeah. you, uh, you followed it through and you, uh, you had a plan and that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Could, yes, there's always better things we could have done, yeah. but to have done something, uh, I think that deserve, you deserve a lot of credit mm-hmm. for that. Uh, but the, um, I think a lot of millennial or Gen Y investors are in exactly the same boat as you. They watched the market meltdown in 2008. They may still remember the tech rack in 2001, 2002, mm-hmm. and they're very gun-shy about stocks. Right. And that's a shame because I think there's a lot of money to be made over a lifetime in the stock market. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to get confident with stocks, be able to ride the short-term volatility, and just put it to work for over 40 years for yourself. That's how mm-hmm. you're going to make your retirement portfolio. It's not going to be in property or real estate. Real estate is a place to live for most people. It's not an investment, although you know it was for your parents, but it's not going to be for you. Mm-hmm. And that's why I so say you got to build some wealth that's separate from the uh, separate from the housing market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the common misconception is to, and you mentioned this uh, before when when you talk to um, a lot of you know, recent graduates, and they their kind of idea of investing in the stock market is finding that hot stock that performs really really well and. And but and then they might get scared that oh well what if that company goes under or or you know what happens then I might lose all my money right and so that's kind of their at least that you know when I started off that was kind of my definition of risk is that I could lose all my money right because if I invested in this company yeah. and it goes belly under or there's a scandal you know I could lose everything and so it was scary but you know as as you get more educated on the subject you learn that okay well if you're buying indexes that's a whole nother story risk is more about volatility as opposed to just you're going to lose all your money right i mean it, it, not every company yeah. is going to go bankrupt and you're not going to lose everything it's so it's yeah. it's a different well, definition of risk that's that is true now i think i think young people have like this strange you know, uh, strange two-pronged view of stocks. On one hand, they want to they want to get rich quickly in the stock market, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, you say, "Well, now you're investing your, for your retirement. This is your RSP or your TFSA, and we're taking the long term. This is serious stuff." Then all of a sudden, they get all worried about stocks, and they say, "Well, I don't know if I want to have any money in stocks, right. or maybe just a little bit in stocks." Mm-hmm. And the 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 thing is. When you're making the long-term commitment, you're not talking about short-term speculation and betting on uh, betting on stocks. That's not something I think you should do when you're young. But the long-term investing is definitely something you should do. There, um, I, I think up to about age 30, you can easily go 100% stocks. Mm-hmm. And if you lose 30% one year, you go, okay, that was a bad year. I think what I'll do is I'll put some more money in and buy low. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. You don't you don't uh, you don't pull back. You jump in. This is a great opportunity. There's nothing. Nothing is better for young investors than a big market crash when right. they have money to invest. Exactly. Because you're going to be buying at a low and 40 years from now, you're going to be thinking, what a great entry point that was. Mm-hmm. And what if you're in your, let's say, uh, in your, th- let's say, okay, up to your 30s, you went 100% equities. Let's say now you're in your, you're in your 30s and you feel, you know what, I can, I can definitely stomach the, the <laughs> volatility. I can handle it and not panic sell, you know, when there's a drop. Uh, what, what are your thoughts there about keeping it in 100% equities at that point? I think, I think you could do that till about, uh, maybe till about the time you have kids. Mm-hmm. Having kids kind of sobers you up financially, it makes you a little more responsible, <laughs> makes you think a little bit more about the future. Maybe that's around the time. That you're going to want to be ratcheting down the risk a bit. Maybe you go like 20% fixed income mm-hmm. uh, or 30%. Um, but that's also the time you're going to be investing in RESPs right. for your kids. And there, 
you can go pretty aggressive too because if you open an RESP for uh, you know your kids one or two and your kid, you expect them to go to university when they're eighteen, well, that's a good long time to get the stock market working for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then w- because you're now you're saying once you have kids, you're putting a bit more into fixed income. Is that for the most part because if something let's say was to happen and you really needed the money, you're able to to take it out? And yeah. And as- also, you know, it's also so that you don't get petrified when. Now, all of a sudden, your portfolio is a lot bigger. Right. <clears throat> it goes down 30%. All of a sudden, that 30% of the larger amount could be, could be quite scary. Right. So uh, you're basically, you know, a lot of diversification isn't to get the best return. It's to, it's to ease your mind mm-hmm. in all kinds of stock market and, and financial market conditions. Mm-hmm. That's important. And that's why as you start to build a bigger pile of money, you want to think more about protecting it as much as growing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Um, so let's maybe jump into the because we've talked about the renter sort of that's in that high twenties, thirties sort of uh, time frame. Uh, let's talk about the homeowner who's in that same kind of time frame. So you know you're in your high twenties, in your thirties. Uh, you you now have a mortgage. Uh, you're earning more money than you have before. You're in a higher tax bracket than you were before. Um, what's what's a good strategy to do now? I mean, you have the mortgage. Should you? take that one extreme and just try to pay it down as soon as possible, taking advantage of all the prepayment options, you know, just to get that security and then save on interest. Or maybe do you do the other extreme where now, okay, let's just make the amortization as long as possible. Let's do everything we can to sort of make the lowest monthly payments and then use that money that we're saving and invest it instead in, you know, RSP or TFSA, you know, or do we do the Smith maneuver and actually go even more extreme and start leveraging now, uh, you know, and investing in the stock market? Uh, you know, what are, what are your thoughts about those different strategies for someone that actually has a mortgage? Well, I think that, um, I think people are too mortgage obsessed right now. And I understand why they are because people who buy houses today, especially in the larger cities are taking on huge mortgages. Mm-hmm. You know, the average prices are, you know, 400, 500, $600,000 or more. Yeah. <clears throat> A lot of people are going in with five and 10% down payments. You're borrowing astronomical amounts and everybody feels uncomfortable with that. And they think I've got to pay off the mortgage as soon as possible. So all I'm going to do is just pay all my spare money into the mortgage. And I think you're missing out on an opportunity to build wealth other than your house. Mm -hmm. And you're missing out on long-term compounding. So I don't really think, uh, I don't think the mortgage has to be such an all-fired priority, especially at a time when, you know, a lot of people's mortgage rates is between two and 3%. That's really low. You're paying not a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. So, um, a good, a good strategy is to think about is make your bi-weekly accelerated payments. So your 25-year mortgage all of a sudden goes down to 20, roughly 22 years automatically mm-hmm. and invest. Invest your extra money. Don't pay down the mortgage. Now, if you have a little bit, if you get a tax return, tax refund, you could put that down against the mortgage. If you have a little windfall of money here or there, a bonus or something like that, you can put that down against the mortgage. But to take a big chunk of your free cash mm-hmm. every payday and say that goes to the mortgage, not into my investments, I think you're missing out on a big opportunity. And I know you think, well, when I when I stop paying the mortgage, I'll get I'll then I'll get um, aggressive on investing, but you may not. Mm-hmm. There may be other things coming up in life that prevent you from doing that. I think yeah. Having money going into the stock market in your late twenties and thirties is is money that will have you know twenty, thirty, forty years to compound, and you'll it'll be, it's a tremendous wealth generating opportunity. Mm-hmm. Or or you pay off your mortgage eventually, and then you say, okay, now let's get a bigger house. <laughs> uh, you know, that's how life goes because you know, and I, I you know my family we did the same thing. We bought a house here, and we moved to Ottawa in. Um, in 1994, we lived in a house for about five years, mm-hmm. and uh, we moved up. And um, I think a lot of people do that. So you make a lot of headway in paying your mortgage off, and the next thing you know, you're moving into a brand new mortgage, much more expensive, mm-hmm. and you've uh, and you're basically much closer to the beginning uh, as opposed to paying off the mortgage. And what have you what have you got to, to in terms of your RSP or your TFSA? Not a heck of a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Um, that's why I say, you know what, it's good to have two, two forms of wealth, two big asset bases in your life, your house and your investment portfolio or your RSP, TMSA, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also uh, we haven't mentioned yet about the diversification component of it too, right? If you're putting all your money into the real into your mortgage, I mean, all your savings, you're you're basically fully invested in the house. That's, that's very uh, undiversified uh, as opposed is, to spreading your... Should... Mm-hmm. 
and we should remember that the housing market doesn't just go up. Right. Yes. It, it, As people in the U.S. learned. And, uh, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, we've, you know, especially, uh, you know, pe- baby boomers have had fabulous success in the housing market. And anyone who's bought in the past five or six years has done really well as well. Mm-hmm. But if you're buying today, um, the run-up, the huge run-up's over. I mean, we may get a little bit further up in prices, but there's not a lot more room to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could stagnate for years or we could go down. And if we do, then your big bet on your house isn't going to work out so well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then what are your thoughts about something much more aggressive like the Smith Maneuver, for example, where now we're basically taking equity out of our house and we're basically um, taking out a loan essentially um, to purchase uh, investments? What are your thoughts of an aggressive strategy like that? I'm not a big fan, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think most people are not temperamentally suited Mm -hmm towards buy borrowing and using the money they've borrowed to buy assets that can easily fall hard in value. I think most people are just going to be sick to their stomach if they do the Smith maneuver or they uh, take out any sort of investment loan Mm -hmm. and buy a bunch of stocks or a bunch of ETFs or mutual funds and then suddenly worth 30% less, Mm -hmm. but you will full freight on them. I just don't, I, I think, I think it's just a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for selling your investments at a low to try and pay back the loan. And all of a sudden you've just blown up a lot of wealth instead of making money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. No, that's good. To, that That's good to hear your, your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's something I was, I was considering doing, but yeah, I guess you have to really have um, one, a really strong stomach for it as well. <laughs> do. And you know what? I'll yeah. tell you what, that's why that's doubly true because in general, you have to be prepared to ride the ups and downs. But if you're going to do that, there is a time when it does make some sense, and that is after a market crash. Right. Okay. But you have to be gutsy. You have to have that strong stomach. You have to go in there and say, this asset that I am willing to borrow to buy is now on sale. Right. Okay. And so I'm going to jump in. That's a great And mm-hmm. you know what? What's probably going to happen is that you bought it at a low, it's going to go lower. But you know, after if the market falls 10 15%, that's a pretty sizable correction in historical terms. Mm-hmm. And yes, it could get worse, but... Chances are, if you, five years from from the time you buy, you're gonna you're gonna make out like a bandit. Mm-hmm. But thing is, most people want to run away from the stock market when it's down right. like that, not buy. But if you were willing to buy, I think that's a case for doing the for doing the leverage investing plan. Interesting, interesting. So you, you'd say a ten to fifteen percent drop in the market would be sort of yeah. that threshold that you would be looking at to saying, you know what, yes, they're exactly. pretty much on sale now. If you're going to pull this That's off, right. this is the this is the right time. Interesting. That's right. Now we could say, oh, well, the market was down 30, 40 percent right. in, in 2009, but that was exceptional. Right. Right. And um, you know, I don't know whether you remember or not, but in March 09, the market hit bottom and it shot back up again like a bullet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know, it really yeah. it, it, it had. Uh, it, 2009 was a spectacular year. Mm-hmm. Ten was good. Eleven was down, and twelve and thirteen were good years. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you can uh, if you can maintain your focus. Um, get in after you know to borrow to borrow to invest after a crash, but don't do it right now. Now is like the absolute worst time. Mm-hmm. We've had a huge market rally from the lows, mm-hmm. and you know I just don't think there's a lot more juice. You know what I mean? We may get another ten percent higher, but we're a lot closer to the top than we are to the next bottom. Right? Okay, excellent. That's good. Okay, no, that, that's a great that's a great tip. Yeah, especially because I was seriously considering doing it, but but I realized that yeah, right now the markets, you know, they, they have been good for quite some time, and it's it's definitely a scary. <laughs> you scary know what you could do is get your get all the get your portfolio that you want to buy together, mm-hmm. <clears throat> get all the uh, all the uh, the preparatory work done, and when the market corrects, as we know it will, who knows if it's going to be this year, next mm-hmm. year, whatever. As soon as it goes, as soon as you're as soon as you're we're down into double di- you know down double digits. Mm-hmm jump in you're all ready to go you know exactly what you're going to do and you're all ready to do it mm-hmm. okay no that's great that's great thank you that's uh yeah that's, <laughs> i'm gonna have to research it some more but it, it's good to to get your perspective on that um no that, that's great thank you rob um so yeah i think um we can go maybe to to the to the last phase uh of somebody that is now getting really close to the retirement. Maybe, you know, they want to retire in a few years. Um, they're at their sort of peak earnings right now. They're sort of at the highest they're probably going to be in their career. Um, you know, they can, if they had kids, they've probably moved out of the house by now. So now they have even more disposable income. Um, you know, so at this point, if you're a renter, 
Um, how do you decide between the whole RSP versus TFSA debate? Are you now pretty much hoping to go heavily into RSPs because you're in that high bracket? Yeah, I would, I would, I would think so. Now would be the time for RSPs. But mm-hmm. you know what I think? I think if you're a renter and you're investing a lot of money, you're probably t- maxing out your TFSA right. and using RSPs. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Keeping in mind that the TFSA is you are done with the tax side of things. So it may, you, it may not be the, quite the optimum tax situation, but it, think how great it would be in retirement to be able to just go scoop money out of your TFSA as you need it and there's no tax mm-hmm. implication. You don't have to worry about the OAS clawback or GIS clawback. Right. Um, it's, I think there's a lot to be said for having a, a good reservoir of TFSA retirement savings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be good. Just maybe use a bit of your RRSP just to, to be in those really low brackets. And then if you need anything extra, you take it out from the TFSA. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, you basically can structure your income according to what works for, uh, for however you end up. You've got every you can you basically have, you know, you have the RSP bucket, the TFSA bucket. You'll have maybe have CPP and OAS and maybe your pension, mm-hmm. company pension, and you just basically um, you try to optimize your your income so that it, it, you get the lowest tax bill mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. And, and then, what if you're now in that situation, but you're not a renter; you're actually a homeowner. Should your goal at this point, because you're looking at to retire in a few years, should your goal at this point be, if you're not mortgage free already, should your goal be to become mortgage free by <coughs> retirement, so that you don't have yeah. that cash flow hit every month? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I I could not stress that more. Um, you know, I think the ideal situation is to get your mortgage paid off, you know, maybe 10, you know, 10 plus or minus a couple of years in advance, mm-hmm. 10 years plus or minus a bit in, in advance of retirement so that you can really power on to the re- retirement savings in your in your peak earning years and, um, and go into retirement. You should go into retirement with zero debt, really. I mean, it's not, it's happening it doesn't happen all the time. Like a lot of people, we're talking about moving up to a nicer house. Some people are moving up to nicer houses in their forties, and they're prepared to go into retirement with a um, with a mortgage. But I just don't think you want to tie down. I mean, tie down a big chunk of your retirement income on mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. And um, it's great to have the flexibility of saying, "I my mortgage paying years are over. I own a house. I have to keep it up." But it's a it's a hopefully a, you know an appreciating asset over the long term, and when I, you know, when it's equity that I can access in an emergency if I need it, um, that's what a house should be. It shouldn't it shouldn't be a debt that you're paying in retirement. That should, your house should be well well paid off by the time you retire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then would you even go as far as to say that you know let's say you're getting in that time range where your house should be paid off, but it's not paid off yet. Would you go as far as cashing in some of your investments? You know, assuming you're not selling them at a loss, or you know, you just had a market correction. So, assuming that didn't happen, let's say you know things are okay, markets are doing all right. Uh, would you cash in maybe some of your investments to basically pay off the rest of the mortgage and just? No, I don't think I would do that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would do that. What I think I'd do is come up with a plan for call call it Operation Pay Off the Mortgage. Right. How can we squeeze every last bit of cash? Mm-hmm. To make double up payments or or uh, uh, prepayments or when renegotiation time comes up to bring a bunch of cash to the table so we're refinancing less, mm-hmm. say uh, come up with a plan to have your mortgage paid off <clears throat> by a certain date, mm-hmm. and you know you can use your um, you know you can use sort of like the um, you know the maturity dates of your mortgage terms to to guide you. So if you have if you've got a four years to go on your five year mortgage, you can think okay at renewal. How many more years do I want to have this mortgage for? And find out, you know, figure out ways to pay down the balance so that when it comes, you can say that'll be our last mortgage. We're going to get a three-year term, and at the end of that three-year term, we're done. Mm-hmm. So you really, you're, you're, you're really, you got to think strategically. Talk to your mortgage broker, or your banker, and you know, find out what you have to do to get it paid off well in advance of your retirement date. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I, I always tell uh, listeners to, I mean, to really, if you're shopping around for a mortgage, make sure that it really does have those generous prepayment privileges. Um, we, My wife and I, we basically paid off our, our mortgage in six years. And that what made that possible, one of the things was basically the, uh, because we, I, I 
purposely picked a mortgage that had very generous prepayment. So it was, you know, you could do the lump sum payments, plus you could double up on your payments as well on, on, in addition to yeah. that. And so That's- so when you take advantage of those things, you can actually really pay off your mortgage quickly. I mean, assuming you obviously have the cash, you know, to, to do it, right? But, um, but, but yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. I mean, to not cash in the investments, just you know, when your mortgage comes up for renewal, let's say, and you're about to do that operation, pay off mortgage, make sure you've got one with really generous prepayment privileges, so that you're not obligated to pay off that huge amount because maybe something happens and you and you know you don't want to be um, that you have to you have this huge bill every single month, but that you have the option to pay it off quickly if if you have the extra money um, set aside. So yeah, I think that's a good yeah. that's a great tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think the prepayment privileges are less of a concern. I mean, you're the exception of the rule, but most young people are saddled. They've got they've got a mortgage, they've got car payments, they've got daycare, and there's not been a lot of spare cash for paying down the mortgage. So if you were to get sort of like your basic 10, 10% uh, principal repayment and 10% increase of, of monthly payments, that's adequate. But when you're getting closer to the end, then you want to make sure you want to give yourself the option of, hey, what if we got, what if I got a big bonus? Or what if we had some sort of a windfall? How how much, how easy would it be to pay the mortgage off? There you want to give yourself a lot of elbow room to pay it off without a penalty. So then those, I think in your latter stages, you're more that you really want to, uh, you really want to leave yourself room to, uh, to get rid of it uh, quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Thank you, Rob. Um, yeah. So that's actually all, all the questions I have. I think, uh, I think we covered up sort of those three life phases pretty, pretty sure. well. So thank you for that. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add and any sort of uh, tips or words of caution or common mistakes Any any sort of uh, final words? You know, I, I think I'll just come back to something I said near the beginning, and that is, you know, worry less about doing the perfect thing and worry more about just doing something, mm-hmm. making, you know, trying to, you know, cut down your debts, get uh, on a regular investing program, you know, buy a house you can afford comfortably so that you can pay the mortgage and meet your other expenses and still have money to save. I'm a big believer in balance, trying to do a little bit of everything and not getting too uh, weighed down with any one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's great. That's great. Thank you so much. And, and Rob, where can our listeners learn more from you as well? Well, just Google me, Rob Carrick, and just put that into Google and you'll, you'll see my stuff on the globe. You'll see my own website, my videos, mm-hmm. my blog, my columns in the paper. It's all there. That's great. And you have some books as well that, that you published. We can. That's true. I have a book. Uh, it's called How Not to Move Back In with Your Parents. It's a book for uh, millennials on how to manage your money so you don't have to move back home. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. I'll put I'll put a link to that book in the uh, in the show notes as well as well as to uh, to some of the other resources you have. Um, yeah, no, that's great. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I thought that was extremely valuable, and I'm sure the listeners will like it as well. And uh, yeah, no, thank you so much. Glad to do it. Take care. All right, take care. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Rob, and you can get all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over at Build Wealth Canada. So just the number 18. Also, while you're there, don't forget to join the Build Wealth Canada community by signing up for free to get exclusive guides and content that is only available to Build Wealth Canada subscribers. Also, as a subscriber, you'll also be the first to know of any giveaways that we will continue to have here on the show where you can win some really great prizes from the many expert guests that come out and get interviewed. Lastly, if you are an iTunes user, I'd definitely appreciate it if you gave this podcast a rating. It helps a lot in getting great guests on the show like Rob. And if there is a guest or subject that you'd like covered, you can let me know there too in the review or you can send me a tweet or an email or whatever you'd like and I'll do my best to cover your question on a future episode of the show. All right, so thank you in advance. I look forward to hearing from you and talk to you soon. All right, bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.